Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. Here is the next instalment of the Gourmet Gospel, starting at section three. Enjoy. Section three, in Christ, quotes. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. Psalm sixteen three. You are already clean. John fifteen three. Luther reassures us that no sin is perceived when God looks at us, but the news gets better yet. For what God does see is the very righteousness of Christ Himself. That is what it means to be in Christ, to live in Him in whom there is no sin, to be clothed in His righteousness, to have a permanently clean spiritual garment because you wear Him, and to have Jesus as your armor. Listen to the testimony of John Bunyan. But one day, as I was passing in the field. And that too, with some dashes of conscience, fearing lest all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul: "Thy righteousness is in heaven." And methought, withal, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was a doing, God could not say of me, "He lacks my righteousness." For that was just before him, I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews thirteen eight. Soon after, Bunyan received a sweet word. Regarding his membership in the body of Christ, understanding he was flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, by this was my righteousness the more confirmed to me. For if he and I were one, then his righteousness was mine, his merits mine, his victory also mine. Bunyan could imagine God saying, "Behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look." And will deal with thee according as I am pleased with him. For God holds us in the same infinitely high regard in which He holds His own Son. His eternal declaration rings out for each one of us: "This is my Son, whom I love; in Him I am well pleased." In that spirit of sonship. We are released from seeking any performance-based status, because you are sons. God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, "Abba, Father." So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. A slave must constantly strive to please or placate his master, and fear the consequences if he does not. Whereas a son 
pleases his father simply because of who he is. The slave may need to compete with other slaves for his master's favour, but among the sons of God, it is not possible either to increase or diminish the Father's full favour bestowed on each of us in the same measure as it is bestowed on Christ. We are released from having to produce in our lives the fruit that others are producing in theirs. As a dear brother once said to me, we are all first in Christ. Consider too Christ's statement that without him we can do nothing. Without can also mean outside, so, put another way, there is nothing we can do to exit his righteousness. Bunyan continues, Now I saw Christ Jesus was looked on of God, and should also be looked on by us, as that common or public person in whom all the whole body of his elect are always to be considered and reckoned. I once heard the late preacher John Wimber give a powerful illustration of this idea when he described a flight he had recently taken. When it ran into turbulence, his neighbour gripped her armrests with such white-knuckled force as if to hold the plane up in the air. Wimber likened our situation in Christ to being an airline passenger. Just as we can do nothing to hold a plane up, nor can we do anything to make our position more secure in Christ, who, by the way, has a perfect safety record. And in his merits, quotes, Reigning in life has to do with position, not performance. Terry Virgo It is done. John 19.30 My son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what's been done for you. I did it all while I was dying. Rest in your faith. My peace will come to you. Keith Green, Song Lyrics According to Bunyan, being in Christ means not just that we are credited with his righteousness, but with his achievements too. His merits mine. His victory also mine. This came home to me during a very dark time in my late twenties, as I was staggering under an intolerable burden of guilt and condemnation, and heard a message of reassurance that went something like this, You have succeeded, because you are in me, and I have succeeded for you. I then recalled how, when I was eleven years old or so, I went with a family of a school friend to hear the renowned British clarinetist Jack Brimer, 1915-2003. A more accomplished and consummate artist it is hard to imagine. Musically inspired, technically supreme, masterful in every element of his vast repertoire, witty and charismatic to boot, he would regale his audiences with informative commentary and amusing anecdote between his dazzling renditions. I had been studying the clarinet myself for about three years at the time, and during intermission my friend's father turned to me and asked, When do you think you'll be able to play like that? About three years, I answered in total earnest. Well, time eventually did in that fantasy. I never rose to the level of a Jack Brimer, 
and I chuckle to think back to it now. But in the concert of life, it is a different story. There, Jesus has already rendered his exemplary performance of the most difficult concerto ever written, and somehow I am included in his achievement and applause. Imagine taking an exam in which anything less than 100% means failure. That is how the law operates. Even if you achieve 99%, it's the 1% you didn't achieve that kills you. But in Christ, you automatically receive 100%. The same goes for prayer, however imperfectly we feel it rendered. If our tears are stored in heaven, if our very groans gain utterance there, if God's thoughts about us outnumber the grains of sand, if Christ himself is pleading for us, and if the prayers of the saints are so distilled as to burn before the very throne of God as incense, then we may be assured that our mumblings and bumblings, repetitions and redundancies, sighs, silences, stammers and screams, our expletives and exclamations, our laughter and our tears, are all music to heaven's ears, and they count. Your prayers are powerful and effective, whether in formal or informal setting, scripted or improvised, written or spoken, or just thought, whether uttered on your knees, lying down, sitting on the pot, or standing on your head. Christ our Champion Quotes We're not out to impress God. He has already been impressed by Jesus. Terry Virgo I came to you in weakness and fear, and with much trembling. 1 Corinthians 2, 3 Mephibosheth didn't have much going for him in the world's eyes, or even in his own. Crippled in both feet, he considered himself a dead dog. Yet King David gave him a place at his own table and adopted him as one of his own sons merely because of who he was, the son of his late and greatest friend, Jonathan. In the same way, we are included in heaven's banquet just because of who we are, children of God. Imagine we are all on a running track in a kind of spiritual Olympics. Some are on crutches, some in wheelchairs, some lame as Mephibosheth. Who are we even to be there? But Jesus does not flog us when we fall out of the spiritual wheelchair, topple from the crutches, or stumble to the ground. He is the all-time reigning champion, and we stand on the winner's rostrum with him, sharing in his eternal achievement. Surely the world of sport has never witnessed a more poignant example of grace than the Olympic bid of British 400-metre runner Derek Redmond in Barcelona, 1992. When the starter said, on your marks, he dedicated the race to his father, who was then watching from the stands. But about halfway through, and when he was in the lead, disaster struck. And Derek Redmond of Great Britain has pulled up with an injury, the announcer declared. The agony in Redmond's body was immediately evident as he collapsed to the track with what looked like a torn hamstring. Yet the race was not over for him. He got to his feet and hobbled onward to a rising crescendo of cheers from the crowd. 
Suddenly, a man came running out of the stands and put his shoulder under Redmond's arm. It was his father, Jim Redmond. Waving off officials, he helped bear Derek round the track. Later, Jim recalled, I had been with him on a number of occasions when he was injured, celebrated a lot of victories with him, and actually, if you like, I took part in every race that Derek took part in. Derek takes up the story about what his father did next. He says, look, you don't need to finish it, you've got nothing to prove, everybody knows you're a winner. And I said, I've got to finish this race. And he said, well look, if you're going to finish this race, let's finish it together. And at this point, that was it. The floodgates were open, and out came the tears, and I couldn't really hold it in much more, and I guess that's because I then realised that it's all over. What more powerful example of a father's love? I tear up every time I recall that scene. Certainly, no Olympic victory was ever cheered more loudly than Redmond's defeat that day. And, like all victories of the heart, it shall be remembered and celebrated eternally where Redmond's tears are kept. You can watch Redmond's race online too, and you may want to bring a tissue if you do. We see that same generous spirit in Jesus' words to the church in Philadelphia. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. And we share in the blessings afforded that church, an open door, vindication against our enemies, protection from the hour of trial, a crown, acknowledgement as a pillar in the temple of God, even the attribution of God's own name to us. Now consider the lament of Sloppy in Charles Dickens' novel Our Mutual Friend after the death of Betty Higdon, for whom he had turned a mangle to dry clothes. I've took it in my head, said Sloppy, laying it inconsolable against the church door when all was done. I've took it in my wretched head that I might have sometimes turned a little harder for her, and it cuts me deep to think so now. The Reverend Frank Milvey, comforting Sloppy, expounded to him how the best of us were more or less remiss in our turnings at our respective mangles, some of us very much so, and how we were all a halting, failing, feeble, and inconstant crew. There you have it. A halting, failing, feeble, and inconstant crew we may be, but we are champions in Christ nonetheless. If you are carrying a crippling sense of failure, and you fall to the ground with your teeth in the dust, you might imagine Jesus coming to you with the question, Would you like me to carry that burden for you? Meanwhile, as we pursue our respective races, is it not reassuring to know a crowd is cheering us on? For we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Among them, I imagine, are angels, the saints of yore, and, of course, our great intercessor himself, Christ. As the great theologian William Gurnall, 1617-1679, wrote, as part of Christ's army, you march in the ranks of gallant spirits. Every one of your fellow soldiers is the child of a king. Some, like you, are in the midst of battle, besieged on every side by affliction and temptation. 
Others, after many assaults, repulses and rallyings of their faith, are already standing upon the wall of heaven as conquerors. From there, they look down and urge you, their comrades on earth, to march up the hill after them. Weakness does not equal wickedness. Let us therefore learn to be merciful with ourselves, never conflating weakness with wickedness. We may even find beauty in it, for God's power is made perfect in weakness. Thus the theologian Daniel Steele, 1824-1914, in his Milestone Papers, imagines a country called Perfect Love, in which are included residents who are by no means favourites of mine, and I cut their acquaintance as much as possible, such as ignorance, forgetfulness, misjudgment, error, inadvertence, failure, and a large family by the name of infirmity. In fact, I have repeatedly cast my vote for their exclusion, but they insist they have a right to remain. They say they are grossly wronged when confounded with an odious foreigner called Sin, who slightly resembles them, but is wholly different in moral character. Hence I live in peace with these old citizens, but do not delight in their society. Perhaps this is what the Bible means by the flesh. When Christ says, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, he is not saying, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is unwilling, or worse, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is evil. Rather, we may understand it as the frailties of human nature, among them doubt and self-doubt, fear, folly, forgetfulness, inconstant faith, inertia, ignorance, immaturity, inadvertence, insecurity, misunderstanding, spiritual blindness or deafness, undue haste or delay, excessive caution or incaution, lack of confidence or overconfidence, underestimating or overestimating our abilities. Even the greatest heroes of the Bible faltered. Just look at the disciples. James and John sought to call down fire from heaven upon a Samaritan village and vied for the best seats in heaven. Peter lacked faith, was apt to speak rashly and put his nose in other people's business, sought to deter Christ from his sacrificial mission, and denied him three times, and Thomas doubted. As a group, they tried to shoo away kids whom Christ wanted to bless, failed to cast out a particularly tenacious demon, and fell asleep at their Lord's greatest hour of need. Yet how does Jesus remember these men? As his friends, as those who stood by me in my trials, And though he rebuked the brimstone-happy brothers, James and John, his epithet for them, sons of thunder, is full of humour and gentle teasing. Mythology also provides many examples of how heroes falter. Of all the great moments in Homer's epic, The Odyssey, my favourite occurs in the final book, when Odysseus, that great warrior strategist and hero of the Trojan War, is finally back in Ithaca and pitted in a fight to the death against scores of men who, during his absence, had plundered his house, bedded his maids, and made a bid for his wife, Penelope. 
When Odysseus runs out of arrows during the fight and sees that one of his enemies has managed to find some weapons, the master of battle felt his knees go slack, his heart sank. But he wins the day, and so shall we. You've been listening to my audiobook recording of The Gourmet Gospel, and I'll continue releasing the book in installments over the coming months. The ebook is currently free at most retailers, and you can find the links to get your copy by going to my website, poetprofit.com, where profit spelt P R O P H E T. Until next week, this has been Abdiel Leroy. 